It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to Rico Bronia. I am going to talk at a very, uh, I guess, like a, a pace and a volume that is limited because I'm trying to record this in a house as opposed to outside on the deck like we did the drunk Rico. And there are people in our house and they are sleeping and they probably don't want to hear about James McCann destroying the Mets over the weekend or the Mets winning two out of three against the Chicago Cubs. So I'm going to try to talk in a very not that excitable way. Do I sound very different right now, Pete? Do I sound like a calmer version of Evan? You are very calm right now, but I mean, for the audience that's not seeing you right now personally, um, just, just imagine Evan's beautiful white teeth on the screen because that's all i see right now it's outrageous <laughs> well what i realized is i bought this beautiful microphone for whenever we'd record the rico on location and it just kind of hit me and pete that the microphone doesn't work that literally any recording is just coming through my phone or my ipad so i said to pete you know what i'll do i'll hold the phone right up to my mouth so it'll be like a, a stronger microphone and so his view is my beautiful teeth. Have I, been, have I been brushing lately? Can you tell? You look great. You look like, you know what? Not, not for nothing. And this is very relevant for today. You kind of look like Mike Francesa. <laughs> I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I, I will say, watching these three games, and I was able to watch every pitch. I scored all three games. This was like the perfect end to each day of my vacation because I'm spending the afternoon and the morning by the pool at the beach, chasing my sons around, played a little bit of mini golf, like doing a ton of really nice family vacation stuff. And then when we walk inside, it's a tiring, tiring day after a long day of just lounging by the pool and jumping in the Atlantic Ocean. I sit down and I watch the Met game. And my wife knows it. She's like, you know what? It's great for you to unwind by watching meaningless Major League Baseball. And so I have sat down and watched all three games, Mets-Cubs. And as much as we talked last time that they're better off losing, and as much as the wins don't matter, especially considering the expectations we had coming into this season, I do find myself sitting there for two and a half hours, or in the case of the finale of this series, three hours, rooting very passionately for this team to win. Like, where they are in the standings, where they are after these trades has not, I guess, affected the will I have as a fan to sit there and hope they win games. Now, I'm not cracking the wild card standings, even though they are sort of hanging in there at six games back in the loss column, but who's counting? I'm not analyzing how the Marlins are doing or the Reds or the Diamondbacks. I'm not scoreboard watching like I normally would, but I did sit here for these three games and when Pete Alonso's going yard, I'm excited. You know, I, I think it's very difficult, at least for me. I'm not saying every Met fan is like this right now, because I think a lot of Met fans have checked out over the last few days and maybe haven't even paid attention to these games. But it is very difficult to turn off that thing in our brain that wants our teams to win. You, know, you just can't flip that off. As far as these games are concerned, we were obviously greeted by the news of Brett Beatty being sent down to AAA, which I was very mixed about because – we are, as fans, selfish. And what I mean by that is we don't want to watch Danny Mendick. We don't want to watch Jonathan Aruz. We want to watch guys that we think are going to be a big part of the future. It's a part of why we've been screaming even louder for Ronnie Mauricio to come up. It may not even be as much that he's clearly ready 
it's more for us as fans. We'd rather watch him play baseball than guys who are clearly not going to be on the roster next year. So when they made the announcement of Beatty going down, I was hit with that same conundrum. Obviously, despite his struggles, we would all rather watch Brett Beatty try to learn and play third base every single day than see more at-bats for guys who have no chance to be on the roster next year. That's obvious. I think we all feel the exact same way. But then you got to take a step back and ask yourself, well, what's better for the player? What's better for his development? And I, I, I'd admit, I don't know. Like, is Brett Beatty better off being a AAA where he can relax, where he can get back to the things that made him play as well as he was playing for the few weeks he was in AAA? Like, does that help him? Potentially. I don't know. But I think our first reaction when we see he's optioned is that selfish take that we all have of, I want to see him play. And I don't want to see that guy play. So I was very mixed about the news because there's no denying the fact that Brett Beatty's been bad for a few months. Like, I don't think any of us can argue against that. He's gone backwards offensively. His defense has been shaky. And so is he better off being a triple A where presumably he's going to play every day, even though we haven't seen that yet, because I keep checking the Syracuse Mets box scores and he's not, he hasn't played. Like since the Mets have optioned him down now, minor league baseball doesn't play on Mondays. They play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, he did not play Tuesday. He did not play Wednesday. So does he need a couple of days to kind of get his head straight because he's disappointed for being sent down? Maybe, I don't know. But eventually he's going to play. And the hope is he's just going to tear it up again. And the Mets can then bring him back to the major league level. And then he'll tear it up up here. So I don't know how you felt, Pete, but I was very mixed about that news that we were greeted to start this series that Beatty was going to go to AAA. Yeah, I think it was upset because, again, I, I, I just really want them to play the young kids as much as possible. So the fact is that the roster, like you said, we're, it's, we're selfish. We're selfish. I don't need to see guys that are not, not going to be part of this team for the near future. So I, I just want to see Beatty figure it out. Now, I am a little concerned that he said, you know, it, I need a break because I think he said like the, the pressure of New York, the pressure of every mistake was kind of getting to him a little bit. I'm not sure if that's the exact quote, but something like that. And it's it's weird because you see what happened in Philadelphia with Trey Turner and everyone kind of like supporting him. It's like, do we have to be catering to all these players now no i no i i don't think so i and you know what's weird about that because buck said he needs a mental break you would think playing for this team in this moment the pressure sort of is off i mean there is no expectation for the mets to win and you know and brett Beatty is certainly not going to be a target of vitriol from met fans he's not going to get booed at the ballpark i mean guys are going to get booed but adam onovino is going to get booed you know, when Adam Adovino faces three batters and they all get on base and he's in a save situation, he's the guy who's going to get beat off the mound. So if anything, you would think this time of year with where they are in the standings, with the trades that they made, the pressure in a weird way will be off. With that said, I, I don't know. Is there a benefit to going down a AAA where there's, you know, you go from less pressure with the major league team to people forgetting you exist down in Syracuse. You know, there's 3,500 people at each game. You're not being bombarded with questions after every single game. Can that help you? Look, we've seen it happen with guys. I know that Michael Conforto's Met career hasn't maybe turned out the way we all had hoped, but he had a stint in the minor leagues. 
Um, we have seen prospects get reset down uh, to, to to reset things and then come back and perform. I think where it leaves the Mets in a tough spot and certainly leaves us as fans in a tough spot is we're hoping to get answers from the final two months of the season so that we can go into the offseason and we can go into next year with kind of a confidence of, okay, this guy's the third baseman, this guy's this role, this guy's that role. And it's going to be very difficult for Brett Beatty to go into spring training next year with any set role. I, I don't know if there's anything he can do at AAA and then coming back to the major leagues, hopefully, in the next two months that's going to make any of us say, yeah, he should be the third baseman. I mean, he's certainly going to be in the mix next year for at-bats. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I, I think that this demotion kind of eliminates that chance that we're going to walk away from this season saying, okay, one thing I feel really good about is Brett Beatty's the third baseman. It does create kind of an opportunity for Mark Vientos. Vientos was going to get at-bats no matter what. Buck made that clear after the trades. But he's going to get at-bats playing third base. And even though the early returns on Vientos defensively are lousy, like even in the finale of this series, he made kind of a nifty play, but then bounced the throw to Pete Alonso, and Pete had to scoop it up. He doesn't look like Brooks Robinson at third base. I, I don't know if I see a world where Mark Vientos is the third baseman of the future for the New York Mets, but I guess if you're looking for any positive, he's going to get a chance to play over there. The first game, though, on Monday night, after the news of Beatty, we were treated to Danny Mendick playing third base. And even though Mendick hit that three-run home run in the seventh inning after the game was well out of reach, I, we're not clamoring to see Mendick. The other thing to keep in mind before we get into these games is that Ronnie Mauricio is going to play third base at AAA. So Beatty, once he does start playing, is he the designated hitter? Do they stick him back in the outfield? Which, if here, here's the, the key to this. If they're looking at Ronnie Mauricio and saying, hey, he can't play the outfield, okay? We, we took a look at him out there. We gave him a few weeks, even though he probably should have been playing the outfield since last year, for all being honest. I mean, the Mets kind of missed the boat on that. They should have been flipping Mauricio all over the diamond two years ago. Why they waited until this year is just beyond. But if they look at Mauricio and say he can't play the outfield, his future with this team is as what? A second baseman, a third baseman, a backup for Lindor at shortstop, a DH. But they're going to play him at third base now in AAA, which leads me to believe they're viewing Mauricio more as the future third baseman than Brett Beatty. That doesn't mean Brett Beatty is a lost cause. It just means Brett Beatty's position may not be third base. It may be left field because the Mets are clearly, you know, depending on how quick it takes for some of the kids they got back in these trades to come up. Like, where's Acuna's future position? Drew Gilbert's going to be in the major league level. When is that? Two years from now? Is it next year? But Beatty's best role may be left field, or it just may be DH. Because think about who's been playing DH for the last two years. We've seen a a hefty dose of Daniel Vogel back. So I I think it's going to be really interesting over the next few weeks is to keep an eye on where Beatty plays down at AAA, how he plays offensively, and then obviously Mauricio's readjustment to third base. That's why if you have the MLB package, um, maybe it pays to watch a lot of Syracuse Mets and Binghamton uh, show ponies or whatever the hell they're called now, uh, more so than the Mets. As far as these games are concerned, Monday night was the Pete Alonso show, which was very nice to see. Pete has awoken over the last three weeks. He hits the three-run home run in the first inning. He hits the two-run home run in the third inning. Um, he looks like Pete Alonso. 
And he continued that throughout this series. I mean, think about it. He hits two home runs in game one. He hits another home run, really the only Met offense they had in game two. He hits the bomb of a two-run home run that tied the game up in the fourth inning of game three. So he goes out and he hits four home runs against the Chicago Cubs. And I don't want to hear any Met fan. I don't want to hear this because this always drives me nuts. Say, well, now he's hitting. It doesn't matter. It's not as if Pete Alonso flipped a switch and said, oh, they traded Verlander and Scherzer. It's time to get hot. He was getting hot before those guys were traded. And I, I think with most guys, that's a misnomer of, oh, well, that doesn't matter. That home run was meaningless. No, the guy's going to the plate. He's trying to hit freaking home runs. The guy's going to the plate. He's trying to drive runs in. And here's what I know. What I know is that Pete Alonso has 35 home runs and 87 RBIs. That's what he has. And it's August. And he missed a few weeks of the season. It's been an odd year for Pete because his average is way down. No question. But think about that. Think about the home runs and RBIs. Guy's got 35 home runs and 87 RBIs. He's on his way easily to a 4,100 season. I, I know it's weird. Like, how do we define Pete Alonso's season when the year is over? And I guess we'll go back and forth on how we want to define it because he did have a stretch in which he was horrendous. I'm not going to deny that. But at the end of the day, look at the production. 35 home runs and 87 RBIs from a guy that uh, supposedly the Mets are shopping around, which I stand by, is the stupidest thing ever. It was good to see Kodai Senga pitch very well in the opener of this series against the Cubs because, look, Kodai Senga is the Mr. Reliable. Him and Quintana are the only two guys you can write down for the rotation next year. I was cursing out Buck because when the rain starts pouring down, and it is pouring down at City Field, which was foreign to me because I'm sitting here, you know, looking at the 90-degree weather by the beach in North Carolina, and I'm looking at my tablet, and I see freaking rain in New York. made no sense to me. I, I could not understand how Buck had Senga out to start the seventh inning. Now, normally, I'm the guy who says, let's push the starter, let's push the starter. It's Kodai Senga. It's pouring rain. His struggles in his last start was related to the dirt on his spikes, or at least that was one of the many excuses that was laid out for Kodai. So now, let me get this straight. You're in the seventh inning of the game. You're up 7-2. to two. So I don't want to say the game's over, but you have yourself a pretty comfortable lead. It's pouring rain, and Sank is out there warming up for the seventh inning. Did not make any sense to me. Luckily, Buck came out, uh, caused the umpires to like talk over if they should stop the game. Then he goes out to pull Kodai Senga, and then finally the umpires pull everybody off the field. And then we get ourselves a two-hour rain delay, which was tremendous. It was a perfect time of night for me, selfishly, to stop watching the game, have a couple of drinks. Uh, everyone passed out. And then at like 11.15, I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? They're going to restart this game? Okay. <laughs> Fine. And they actually held on and won, which was mildly surprising because it's 7-2, to having to get nine outs from the bullpen. You never know. Uh, he did go to Brooks Raley to pitch the seventh inning. With a five-run lead after the rain delay restarted, he did a fine job. Um, Drew Smith, you know, I, I guess this was the okay Drew Smith game because that's when he came in and got the strikeout of Christopher Morrell. And then Jimmy Yacobonis reminded us that he still existed, in case you forgot, in case you're like, wait, Jimmy Yacobonis is on the roster now? But it was a nice win. 
you know, Pete Alonso, it's a couple of home runs. Francisco Lindor has been red hot. Uh, it, to me, it felt good to win a baseball game, especially after watching them lose six in a row to the Orioles and the Kansas City Royals. Are you with me on that, Pete? Because I know you last time on the drunk Rico. Now, maybe it was the drinking. I don't know. You were all in on, hey, let's just lose as many games as possible. When you sit there on a Monday night and you watch Pete Alonso with two home runs and Kodai Senga pitch well, there's no satisfaction in watching the Mets win a baseball game? There's a lot of satisfaction watching Pete Alonso continue to do what I love watching him do, which is hit home runs. I do enjoy Kodai Senga pitching well, but I got to be honest, I was at two out of three games this week. I was at the Tuesday and, and the Wednesday game, and with bases loaded in the ninth inning, um, and what Phil, whatever his name is, the new new pitcher that they had to go out there, yeah, I was like, you know what? If some if Ian Happ hits a grand slam, I'm not really going to be upset. Oh wait, well, okay, okay. So you hit on something that is a little bit different. So when you look at game two of this series. They lose the game 3-2. to two. I think we remember that. They score the two runs in the first inning. Pete hits the home run. That I, I didn't think was a home run. Then you see the replay. It was a home run. Then Jamison Tyone shuts them down completely. When the Mets lose that game 3-2, to two, and Drew Smith comes in and does what he does best, which gives up a home run, and the Met offense does what they do best, which is not able to get the big hit, I was numb to the loss. Okay, that, that's how I would phrase it. I still want to see them win. I enjoyed winning game one of this series. I enjoyed watching them win game three of this series. But I do and I did find myself very numb to the loss in game two, which means we're almost getting the best of both worlds here. When they win, it's nice. When they lose, it's, uh, okay, let me go about my night. <laughs> okay, it's not eating my soul the way it did in April, May, June, and July. And, and that's definitely how I felt about game two, because they lost game two. If this game was played in May or June or July, I, I tell you right now, we're doing an instant reaction. Like that's, what, that's how bad that loss really was. I mean, think about it. They scored two runs in the first inning. They get a cheap two-out double from Omar Narvaez in the second inning. And then they proceed to make Jamison Tyone look like he's the second coming. They get mowed down. 16 in a row is retired. We watch the slow, I don't want to rip Carlos Carrasco, but he's handed a 2 nothing lead. He gives one back in the fourth. He gives one back in the fifth. We watch Drew Smith do what he does best, which is give up the home run of Mike Tuchman of all people. Boy, the Yankees could use him right now, can't they? And then, of course, the Mets have a golden opportunity, 2-1, two 2-out two in the eighth inning, McNeil grounds out. They get the leadoff man on in the ninth inning, and then big freaking Daniel Vogel back bounces into a double play. Like, that game had all the makings of the typical frustrating loss. But because we're sitting there 10 games I'm under five hundred, we, or at least I am, a little bit more numb to it. That's the one positive that comes out of it. But that that had all the makings of your brutal 2023 Met loss. An offense that goes limp, uh, starting pitching's okay, doesn't go deep enough, and Drew Smith decides to just, you know, stone cold stun us and send us home as losers. It was it was typical. No, no, you nailed it, my boy. You, you, you missed a big play, too. My boy, Jan Gomes, with an RBI double as well in, in game two, which he, uh, he likes <laughs> to go off against the uh, Mets and the Yankees when he's in town. 
Well, I'm glad you brought that up, but then also Jan Gomes got thrown out by Carlos Carrasco trying to go to third with uh, nobody out. You want to bring that one up, or we can that, ignore that, that? That's his. That's his boy, by the way. They used to be teammates with Cleveland, so uh, I think that was a little, that was a little friendly thing going on. <laughs> that was a fun inning, that fifth inning, because you had Jan Gomes thrown out trying to go to third with nobody out, and then Carrasco picked off Nick Madrigal. So we got two of the three outs by just throwing guys out on the base paths. Which was, you know, I guess nice to see. I don't know what to think about with Carlos Carrasco because he's one of the guys who kind of fits the bill of there's no future with him. It, it's similar to Danny Mendick. It's similar to Daniel Vogelback. It's similar to Abraham Almonte, uh, to Jonathan Aruz. Guys that are here, guys that are taking up space, guys that, yeah, I get why they're here because you have to fill out a roster. But unlike McGill and Peterson, who you can at least watch and say, hey, they're battling for a rotation spot or really more so battling for a bullpen spot or battling to be a depth guy next year. I mean, Carlos Carrasco is just here. That's all he is. And if the Mets had more young pitching that were ready to get the opportunity, I'd say send them away. I mean, he's a nice guy. He's had a nice career. But Carlos Carrasco every five days is the, the least of the guys in the rotation right now. And I know this is, you know, such a pathetic list to make. Who do I want to watch start? Senga's number one. Quintana's number two. Peterson's three. McGill's four. And then Carrasco's not even fifth. He's like 50th. Because (laughs) those other four guys, again, I can rationalize them being on the team next year or them fighting to prove something. Carrasco's literally just filling out his baseball reference website. That's all he's doing right now. So when he pitches badly or well, does it freaking matter? I mean, it means nothing. Well, let me ask you a question, though, because if they decide to DFA him tomorrow, do you think a team is actually going to pick him up? Oh, yeah, I think there would be a team that would pick him up, yeah. I mean, I, I naively thought that a team, if the Mets ate the salary, would pick him up at the trade deadline only because he's a veteran with experience. And if you're a team like Cincinnati or a team like Baltimore – why not? I'm not even saying he'd be in the rotation, but why not? You know, why not have a guy like that on your roster? With that zero six. <laughs> well, I, I get he hasn't been good, but he has a re- he still has a resume. You know what I mean? Like he still has yeah. uh, the resume of pitching in the postseason and just being a major league pitcher, as bad as he's been this year, and he's been crappy. I agree with that. Uh, Mike Vassell certainly made a, an impact the other day. I mean, Mike Vassell took a no hitter into the ninth inning. So, you know, I saw that and I'm thinking, all right, can he, is he ready to come up yet? I know he hasn't been dominating at AAA, but that was something nice to see. My favorite part of this game, game two of this series, was Pete hits a ball to center field that initially looks like an RBI double, one nothing Mets. You see on the replay, it's clearly a home run. So, and Pete, were you, you, Hoff, you said you were at this game, game two of this series? Yeah. So you, you may have missed this. This bothered me for some reason. So Pete sees on the big screen, hey, this is clearly a home run. This is going to be overturned because the umpires are reviewing it. So he then proceeds before it's overturned to start rounding the bases. And the third base umpire, Ramon de Jesus, stops him and says, no, 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 no. You get back to second base. It hasn't been overturned yet. <laughs> Meanwhile, we all see it is clearly a home run. It's going to be overturned. Pete goes back to second base. 
Then they overturn it. And then you see Pete looking. I'm like, oh, am, am I allowed to now? Can I round the bases now? Am I okay now? But look, not as bad as uh, an Angel Hernandez situation. But come on. <laughs> We all, saw, we all saw it. Like at the, the oh, I, did. I, get, I, I didn't miss that at all because first of all, off the bat, I thought it was a it was a home run. I was like, oh, it definitely could the the orange hit the black wall. I thought it, I saw that from the get go. So then once the replay happened, like dude, that screen is gigantic. No one's missing that. It was obvious. Like they saw it too. So like, what the hell are we waiting for? Let them go. It, it, there are certain replay calls where. You're not sure. Like, there was a pickoff play in game three of this series with Lindor. They initially called him out. They overturned it. Where you're not sure if they're going to overturn it. Because sometimes it needs to be so overwhelming. But on home runs like that, the one that Pete hit, it clearly hit the black wall. It clearly hit the back wall, which makes it a home run. But he's been, man, Pete's been incredible. You know, I know I mentioned that earlier in the pod, how great he's been and where these final numbers are going to go. His average is even coming up lately, really since I guess it's July 20th is the line of demarcation. So you're talking about, you know, we're talking about three weeks, uh, almost uh, more than that, I guess. Yeah, about three weeks where he has been so freaking locked in and I don't want it to be thrown out as, well, they're out of it now. Who cares? It, It shouldn't be. Because a hot streak's a hot streak. And yeah, it sucks that the rest of the team was bad enough where the Mets had to trade guys off. And Pete, Pete contributed too. Don't get me wrong. Like he had a stretch where he was hitting 140, 150. But right now, he is so locked in at the plate and it's fun to watch. Well, let me just do a couple things here. First of all, I don't know if you, uh, there was a record they put up on the board. I'm not sure if they put it up on TV that he set tonight. Do you know what that is? A record he set in game three of this series. Is it a record related to home runs against one team? No, but it is a record for home runs. Yes. Home runs in a series? Home runs. It is. He he is the first Met to have four seasons of 35 plus home runs. Wow. 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 He was he was tied third. I think it was Strawberry Piazza, and I'm blanking on the third guy that it was. But but he is now alone in one player hitting 35 plus home runs or more in four different seasons. I mean, wow. well, this is what's gonna this is what's gonna start happening with Pete Alonso. By the way, oh no, he's gonna own if the Mets re-sign him long term. He'll own every record in the books. My guess would be Beltron. How many times did Carlos Beltran hit 35 home runs in a season? I'm going to pull it up real quick. Uh, 2006. Actually, wow, he only did it one time. In 2006, he had 41 home runs. He hit 33 in 07, 27 in 08, 22 in 11. So, yeah, it wasn't even Carlos Beltran. So what, what did you say it was three times of hitting 35 home runs in a season? Three seasons of 35 or more home runs. Wow. Well, who, you know, who you know what makes sense about it? When you think, and you mentioned the other sluggers, Mike Piazza, Daryl Strawberry. Kingman. We, we, did you say Danny Mendick? No, no, Kingman. Kingman's got to no, be the Dave, third guy. Dave Kingman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, as a franchise, have not had sluggers for an extended period of time. I mean, Daryl Strawberry and Mike Piazza are almost the opposite because 
Daryl they let leave in free agency. Mike's the guy they acquired right before he was about to hit free agency with L.A. and then Florida. So we haven't had, and I think that's part of what makes Pete so special if the Mets lock him up long term and why he'll own every record in the books. We haven't had, and David was a tremendous player. He wasn't a slugger, though. I think we all know that. We haven't had a slugger that spent 10 years here, that was able to spend their entire career here. So it's really not a surprise when you think about it. And and I think that Pete, like you look at him, one thing he's proven in his time at the major league level, and I knock on wood when I say this, even though he's already screwed it up this year by getting hit by that Charlie Morton pitch, is he plays. Is he goes out there and he plays. He is reliable. And Gary Cohen and Keith and Ron were having an interesting discussion at the finale of this series, talking about how the Atlanta Braves have broken the mold in terms of they play their guys every single day. And we've had this trend over the last decade or so where guys get rest days, where guys don't play 162 games a year anymore. Like it, it just doesn't happen. And that the Atlanta Braves have a bunch of guys who go out there and play every single day. And I got to credit Buck with this. The Mets do too, because Francisco Lindor plays every single day. I mean, when was the last time Lindor got a quote rest day? He plays. You know, he may have a child and Buck may say, I'm not going to play you tonight, but Francisco Lindor plays every single day. Brandon Nimmo, when healthy, plays every single day. Pete Alonso, when healthy, plays every single day. I don't mean to take a shot at other teams, but why not? Do the Yankees do that? I'm serious. Did the New York Yankees, with their healthy players, play every single day? No, they don't. And they're not alone. There's a lot of teams that do that. The Mets, I give them credit. I know Gary was talking about it more in context with the Braves, but the Mets have guys that go out and play every single day, and Buck isn't holding them back. And Pete's one of those guys. And I appreciate that because right now, if you ask me, Who would you rather have on your team, a guy who plays 120 games every year but is a monster and is better than Pete, or a guy that will go out and play 150 games every year and be what Pete is? I'd almost rather have the guy that goes out and plays. It's just it's a reliability thing. So I I don't want to turn every Rico into this is why Pete needs to be re-signed or this is why trading Pete is stupid. But every once in a while, it's, it's worth bringing up. Because I'll I'll say this one more time, and I hope I don't have to go crazy about it. Letting DeGrom go pissed me off, and I argued against it. Trading Pete, unless it's some kind of trade none of us see coming, or not re-signing him is three times dumber than not bringing back Jacob DeGrom. And I don't want to have to go down this road of it being a thing. I hope it's not a thing. I hope they re-sign him at the end of the season, and then we never have to talk about this stupid thing again. Well, you know, people say the core is broken and that this core is not good. But let's be serious. Let's break down the core. Who is the core players? Lindor, Alonzo, Nimmo, and you throw McNeil in there. Three out of the four have had pretty solid seasons. Like, like the numbers for Lindor and Alonzo 
are going to match to what we kind of talked about. They're going to hit. We always knew Alonzo was going to be close to 40, 110, 120 RBIs. And Lindor, we were hoping for another 30, 100 season. And he's going to pull that off. Nimmo, his you know, batting average may be down a little bit. But for the most part, like his power came through. Uh, so, so is the core broken? No, they, they don't pitch well. that's been my point since you know april and that's not to exonerate everything else with the offense i mean the offense has had its issues this season jeff mcneil up until recently has had a terrible season um third base production which we thought was going to be better has been awful has been terrible they've gotten very little production out of their corner outfield spots their dh spot has been terrible so Again, it's not to exonerate their offense, but no, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree that, you know, the core of Alonzo, Lindor, Nimmo, and McNeil are the main culprits. I think McNeil's certainly a big culprit, but I don't think that's the reason why they've struggled. Uh, I think there's a lot of other reasons why we're unfortunately in the position we're in. But as far as the finale is concerned, you know, I mentioned Pete hits another home run. Jeff McNeil hits a home run. The Mets come back from 2-0 down. They tie it at 2. They take the lead in the sixth inning on the McNeil home run and the RBI single by, of all people, Jonathan Aruz or Araz or whatever the hell you want to call him. I I apologize. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he has a lot of pride in his last name, so I want to show respect to the Aruz family and get it right. The Jonathan Aruz family, he comes through with an RBI single. And the Met bullpen did an outstanding job. I mean, Grant Hartwig was great. Trevor Gott had a clean inning. Josh Walker may have been the most impressive guy. He strikes out Bellinger in game two of this series. He comes out in the eighth inning with a two-run lead against the heart of the order, gets Ian Happ to fly out, strikes out Bellinger again, and strikes out Dansby Swanson. And that's fun. That's interesting because Josh Walker is one of those guys battling for his future of the Met bullpen life. Like, could Josh Walker be a lefty out of the bullpen in 2024? Uh, So far, the early returns have been no, but in his last two games against Cody Bellinger, he's given you some reason to say, hmm, interesting. I wish David Peterson would be stretched out more because I don't even know what to say about his performance today. Now, was it bad? I I don't know. He gives up the home run on the first pitch of the game to Christopher Morrell, which all gave us... The heebie-jeebies at Derek Jeter, first pitch, boom, home run, left center field. He gives up the run in the second inning, which was not helped out by a pass ball by Francisco Alvarez, the triple to Saya Suzuki, which was really bad defense because McNeil couldn't run that down, which turned into a triple. And then Alvarez commits the pass ball. Then he loses the plate in the third inning, but gets a huge double play against Ian Happ, gets the first two outs in the fourth, and then gives up a couple of base hits and then he gets pulled. So I, I can't tell you David Peterson was great by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't also say he was terrible. He only threw 62 pitches, and Buck took him out so early that, hey, if he gets through the fourth inning, and let's say pitches a clean fifth, all of a sudden you're looking at five innings, two runs, with one of those runs really coming because of bad defense, that's not a bad performance. But he didn't pitch long enough. So I, I think as time goes on, obviously David Peterson's pitch count will start to expand, and we'll get to see. I still would have preferred to have watched him out of the bullpen, but I guess looking at this Met rotation right now, if you used Peterson out of the bullpen the way I wanted, how the hell would they have filled out this rotation? They don't. They just don't have enough starters. But obviously the highlight of this game was 
what happened in the ninth inning. For some reason, Brooks Raley wasn't available. So he goes to Adam Ottavino, who's terrible when he pitches back-to-back games, gives up a home run to Suzuki, 4-3 game, gives up a base hit to Candelario, mistakenly uses his third pickoff attempt or disengagement and allows Candelario as the tying run to go to second with nobody out, walks Mike Tockman, and then Buck Showalter did something that Adam Montevino still can't believe. He walked out to the mound and took him out of the game. And I loved it because there was no sign in those first three batters that Ottavino faced that he was going to somehow magically turn this thing around and get three outs before allowing the tying or go-ahead run to score. So even though the option was Phil Bickford, who, I mean, no one has faith in Phil Bickford, especially in his brief time here with the Mets, I kind of agreed with Buck saying, let me get out of Eno out of the game. I'd rather try something different. And Phil Bickford, shockingly, you know, he gets the bunt out, which is whatever basic, because Nick Madrigal was giving himself up to advance the runners. He strikes out Christopher Morrell shockingly on a fastball down the middle, walks Nico Horner, and then strikes out Ian Happ. Were you now, Pete, you were did you stay through the conclusion of this game, or since you were with your family, who's filled with Yankee fans, did you leave early? No, we were there the entire game, my friend. How stunned were you that Phil Bickford was able to get out of it? Like I said, I was I was waiting for the grand slam to take place, and I was okay with it. I was I chalked it up as this is this is another game in 2023 that's not going to go our way. Adam Ottavino sucked, and he got booed. And again, like I don't want to sit here and try to boo guys and whatnot and say they deserve it, but that was you put us in a bad situation. We've been the, the game was in our hand. Alonzo had the big home run. McNeil had a big home run, and we're we're right where we're supposed to be. And he puts us in that spot, and then Bickford comes in, and you automatically think that this game is just going to go downhill because I've seen him so far, and he has life on the fastball, which is good. That's kind of what they need. They need some velocity from these from from these relievers. Problem is they they can also take it out of the ballpark. Yeah, I as far as booing out of Eno's concern, I think you're booing the performance. You're booing the fact he comes in, he gives up a home run. He forgets how many disengagements there were and allows the tying run to go to second base. He was, he was bad. And he had a stunned look on his face when Buck came out. I think he mouthed, I can't believe it, or you got to be kidding me. So he was obviously very taken back that he was pulled from this game, but he, he, he was awful. <laughs> you know what else is there to say? Like he just he wasn't good. And Buck but that, would... uh, yeah, and then that's the thing though. Ev. Like like it's about fucking time. Excuse my language, but it's about time that Buck says this, this is unwatchable. Your ass is out of here. I'm sorry. Yeah, except he did it with a very unreliable reliever, but somehow it worked. <laughs> he, got, he got freaking lucky, <laughs> and the Mets won this game and they won the series, which means I'm on my way to being right. Uh, during the drunk Rico, I predicted a five and five homestand that would start off by winning two out of three against the Cubbies. I think you said a two and eight homestand. So unless the Mets lose their final seven games of this homestand, it looks like they are going to overperform Pete Hoffman's expectations. Well, wait a second. Hold on. Look who's coming to town this week. (laughs) No, I know. Oh, trust me. I know who's coming to town this week. The big bad first place Atlanta Braves. Uh, let's get to a couple of your emails, including one topic I definitely want to bring up because um, here's my excuse for not knowing this or forgetting this. Not It's not not knowing it. It's just completely forgetting its existence. 
I never thought we would have to spend time on an August Rico Bronia talking about the 2024 MLB draft. But here we are. So Frank Fooder brings it up. I wanted to expand on this upcoming draft. The draft is now a lottery, similar to the NBA, meaning the Mets will not be guaranteed a top six pick if they finish in the bottom six records. But it also means they still have a chance if they don't. Any chance Rob Manfred rigs it since he probably isn't a fan of Cohen. Excuse me for a second. (coughs) Sorry. Choking up thinking about their freaking MLB draft lottery. <laughs> so, so Frank is right. Here are the rules of the MLB draft lottery. All right. Each team is given odds to jump and pick number one overall. The top six slots are selected by the lottery. So he's right. Like even if the Mets finish with, let's say, the 10th best record in Major League Baseball, they can still jump. In fact, if you go to Tankathon, which is a website we've used for the NBA and the NFL over the years, looking at, hey, where a team is selecting in the draft, they even have a draft simulator. So, for example, if I go there right now, in fact, well, let me do that. Let's have some fun. Let's go to the MLB draft Tankathon. Uh, We can play the lottery simulator together. So right now, the Mets have the ninth best record in Major League Baseball. That doesn't mean they're picking ninth. There's a lottery. When you have the ninth best, uh, ninth worst record, you have a 2.7% chance of jumping to number one. I'm about to hit the sim lottery button. Let's see where the Mets end up picking. You ready? The New York Mets moved down one slot. They are now picking 10th in the draft, <laughs> this, <laughs> which, this actually, gonna... which actually means 20th. Because remember, uh, they would have to move back 10 slots if they aren't in the top six. But you know who jumped up in the lottery? The New York Yankees. The New York Yankees went from picking 16th to 6th. How about that? Ah, and they're 59 and 56 as of this recording. So even though they had a 0.48 chance to win the lottery, they somehow jumped from 16 to 6. I'm going to simulate the lottery one more time. We are picking ninth. Let me simulate it one more time. We are picking 10th. I'm going to simulate it one more time. We are picking ninth. I'm going to simulate it one more time. We're picking 10th. It seems like we have no lottery luck. We're picking 10th again. Now we're picking 11th. So basically, <laughs> we, we are the Knicks of, of baseball. Yes. <laughs> yeah, apparently. So Frank is right, though. If the Mets lose games and end up in that bottom six, that doesn't even guarantee that their draft pick wouldn't move back the 10 slots. They also have the possibility of winning the lottery and getting the number one overall pick, which would not be affected by being over the luxury tax where they have to move back 10 slots. They wouldn't move back 10 slots if they're in the top six of the draft, but it is not automatic. You actually have to, after the lottery, be in the bottom six. So if you finish with one of the three worst records, which clearly is going to be Oakland and Kansas City, we'll see about the third, probably the White Sox. But they get. But then again, if they play the Yankees all the time, they'll move up those standings quick. You have a 16.5% chance of winning. So they have the bottom three teams at 16.5%. Then it goes down to 13.25%. Then it goes to 10%, 7%, and so on. It moves down. So that is something to keep an eye on, that the lottery does exist. 
and that could end up effing the New York Mets or helping the New York Mets. Uh, let's get to a couple more of your emails. Uh, Junior Canales writes, big fan of the podcast, been listening since 1995. We appreciate that. Even before Rico Bronia made his Met debut, you've been listening to the uh, Rico Bronia. Because remember, he made his Met debut in 1995. Wait a second. Maybe that's why Junior wrote that. Uh, it makes a lot of sense now. Uh, I want to ask you guys two questions. Do you think the Mets would make a ton of sense during the offseason for a player like Cody Bellinger? We need a power lefty in the lineup. He can play all three outfield positions and first base and would make the lineup deeper. Yeah, I think Cody Bellinger, especially off of the year he's having this year, would be a great addition. The Mets could use an outfielder. I think that you're going to pencil in Nimmo in center as much as Starling Marte's had a terrible year this year and he's back on the injured list with this groin issue. He's going to be the starting right fielder. I don't see a scenario where he's not. I don't think the Mets are going to try to buy off his contract to send him out, but it does leave left field wide open. You could go internal. I think it's likely they're going to go internal. Uh, I think Bellinger would be a good fit, but I think it's unrealistic because if the Mets are going to spend money, I would assume it's going to be mostly on pitching. I don't think they're going to buy a bat like Bellinger, who's going to be expensive coming off of the year he's coming off of. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and there's no, and I got to be honest, I'm kind of over, like, I love that, that the fact that we have money, we are going to spend it. And we could go out and buy a bat. And I got to be honest, I'm actually very comfortable. And I'm, I, I had, didn't say it last year. I didn't say going to this this free agency period either. I always said, we need a bat, we need a bat, we need a bat. We don't. Because you could throw McNeil at left field. You could throw Beatty at left field. You, who knows, maybe Mauricio. But you have Alvarez at catcher who plays every day. He's putting 20-plus home runs there. You have three guys that'll give you twenty plus home runs, and and then if you can get one other prospect to start hitting, you're golden. I also think it's not that they couldn't use a good veteran addition; it's that you're going to use your money for pitching, and I'd prioritize it a hell of a lot more than I would adding another bat. His second question is: Do you think Roman Reigns drops the title to Cody at WrestleMania? My answer to that is yes. I don't think there's any question. I know there's a thought of a bloodline fatal four-way. Cody's over, man. And I wasn't in favor of Cody winning at this year's WrestleMania, but I'm certainly moving in the direction that he should win at next year's WrestleMania. Steve Johnson writes, I agree with sending Beatty down. I might be in the minority, but I actually agree with the Mets that sending Beatty down. He's been struggling, and maybe some time in AAA will get him back on track. It's sad to think that at the beginning of the year, he was looked at by many baseball writers as a potential rookie of the year. What I would find fascinating is that when I checked to see Beatty was in the Syracuse lineup Tuesday night, he wasn't, and instead Mauricio was playing third base, and the same is the case for tonight. He means Wednesday or Tuesday. I don't think the Mets have handled Mauricio well, but at least he's playing third base now. He might actually be the third baseman of the future. This goes to show you, though, that you just never know with prospects. Vientos doesn't impress me. Beatty is struggling, and Mauricio should have been here months ago, and I just think the organization really botched that. Do you think we have a third base controversy now? I think where the Mets botched things is that Ronnie Mauricio should have been playing other positions years ago. You knew Francisco Lindor is signed long-term. 
you know this guy can break through at the major league level maybe a year or two from now. Why not start having him play other positions? That doesn't mean he should never play shortstop. I think there's a value in him still playing shortstop. He can be, once he's here, the main backup for Francisco Lindor. I think it takes the roster pressure off of you. Uh, You don't necessarily need to have a backup shortstop on your roster if Ronnie Mauricio can play shortstop, even if he's your starting third baseman or starting left fielder or whatnot. So I think the, the mistake that they made was they should have had him playing these other positions years ago. I don't know if we have a controversy yet. Uh, I got to see Mauricio play third base. Is he going to play a better third base than he did second base in left field? Can Beatty play an average outfield? And also, we can't forget DH exists. The Mets do not have a long-term DH on this roster. I think ideally you want the DH to almost be a rest position where it's not one guy clogging it up every single day. But I think Ronnie Mauricio and Brett Beatty could end up both playing third base a considerable amount of time. They both, or Beatty could play a lot of left field and Beatty can DH. I think there's a lot of options with that. A lot of options. Richard Molina writes, we all agree that for the Mets to have any shot at being com- compatible next year, I think he means competitive next year, they need to address the starting pitching. You believe that Urias is the best pitcher not named Otani out there and want the Mets to target and acquire him. How have the Mets shown us they will have any interest in doing so? They repeatedly do not show interest in guys that require them to give up a draft pick compensation. Of course, he's talking about the qualifying offer. Maybe they're thinking that may change if they're in the bottom six. Do their trades make it popable? Does thinking it changing of the picks, does their thinking change if the picks are 40 to 50? I expect us to go more flattery. Uh, Jack Flaherty, Lucas Giolito route, and the guy from Japan. I still think the most logical option is to take any combination of Vientos, McNeil, Mauricio, Vassal, Pareda, Stewart for Corbin Burns, Shane Bieber, a true number one from a small market team that has no hope to keep them. So as far as the draft pick compensation is concerned, you are right that the Mets over the last few years has not, they have not shown an interest in giving up a draft pick, which you have to give up if you sign a pitcher or anybody who is offered the qualifying offer. Julio Urias will 1,000% be made the qualifying offer. Here are the rules around the Mets, just to have the facts straight. If they sign somebody who has made the qualifying offer and you are a team that exceeded the luxury tax in the preceding season, which is the New York Mets, obviously, you will lose your second and fifth highest selections in the following year's draft, as well as $1 million from its international bonus pool for the upcoming upcoming signing period. If such a team signs multiple qualifying offer free agents, it's going to forfeit its third and sixth highest remaining picks as well. That group of teams includes the Mets, the Dodgers, the Padres, the Phillies, the Red Sox, the Yankees. Um, to me, Giving up your second and fifth pick in the draft, not your first pick in the draft, okay? That's not even a possibility here. It's your second and fifth pick. Remember two years ago, the Mets had multiple first-round picks because they failed to sign uh, uh, Kumar Rocker. That second first-round pick qualified as the second pick they'd have to give up. So obviously, the Mets were not going to have any interest in giving up a first-round pick 
In this case, it's your second pick and it's your fifth pick. Would that be worth giving up to sign a Julio Urias or Shohei Otani? Absolutely. Are there lesser free agents where I'd say, eh, it's not really worth giving that up? Sure. I mean, I, I understand that. I don't think we want to just look at draft picks as useless. No one's saying they are or a million dollars in international bonus money. It's obviously important, but when you have a chance to get elite level players, especially in Urias's case, because he's still so young and I'm loving the fact he's having a terrible year uh, because all of a sudden, like I was watching, I was reading a, a free agent ranking of the upcoming class and Julio Urias was like 12th. I'm looking at this thing. Have you not been paying attention? I know he's having a bad year this year. The guy had the best DRA in the National League last year. The guy goes out there and makes almost all his starts. And he's 26, 27 years old. And he's a lefty. And he's done in the biggest spots in the world. Uh, to me, that's a top free agent. <laughs> you want to say Shoei Otani's number one? Of course he's number one. But who's number two? Who's number three? He should be right up on top of that list. And, and I would not be afraid of giving up a second and fifth round pick to sign a pitcher as good as that. You with me on that? Uh, yeah, at this stage, yeah. Because what else do we have to look at? Anybody else in this in this roster? I mean, I you need something to fill it out. And I would take a risk there, 100%. And, and it's not just one of the better pitchers available this offseason, but I'm looking at the next two, three offseasons. The Mets are going to have to build a rotation through free agency and trades because the young pitchers coming up the pipeline, like Christian Scott, like Mike Vassell, uh, like Tyler Stewart, I don't know unless you hit the lottery that those guys are going to be your front-end starting pitchers on a playoff contending team. It's very, very unlikely. Those guys may be in the rotation. Those guys may be better than the way they're projected, but they're going to have to, even if it's not this year, it's going to be next year or the year after. Even if the, you buy this whole, hey, they, they may not compete in 24, they're going to compete in 25. Okay, who's pitching in 25? Like You have to go down this same route either way. So why not do it now? You know what I mean? Like, why would you then wait two or three years? <sighs> but we certainly have a lot of time to discuss all this. Bottom line is the Mets beat the Cubs. They won two out of three. And I leave you with this. They are only six games back in the loss column in the National League wildcard race. <laughs> I know that's crazy. I know it doesn't mean anything because after this weekend with Atlanta, that number will change very, very quickly. But as of right now, six games back in the loss column in the National League wild card race. The next Rico, I will be home. I will be off vacation. I'll record it right after the Braves series. It's a four-game series in three days, doubleheader on Saturday, Sunday night baseball, Sunday night. So it'll be a late one. You'll probably have it in your, uh, you know, wherever you download podcasts by Monday morning. And I'll be back on the air Monday at Jet or Giant Camp. I forget which day we're doing first. I know we're doing Jet Camp. We're doing Giant Camp on Monday, Jet Camp Tuesday. How do you know this? How do you know my schedule? Look at you. Well, because we're all going to be at Giants Camp, and I'm not going to be at Jets Camp, unfortunately. So that's why I'm Uh a little jealous. (laughs) That that, That makes sense. Okay, so Giant Camp on Monday. Jet camp on Tuesday. Beautiful. All right. Well, we will talk to you then. And before that on the Rico, you can obviously email the pod, the Rico B at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>